0: Thank you, uh, TV crew, for making that happen so well. You know, we really don't appreciate enough uh, Valerie Williams and Jeff and Shelby Smar. I'm going to forget someone uh, who's down there right now, but they come every Sunday and make our TV broadcast uh, happen, and they just kind of, I don't even see them because they're downstairs in the basement. So uh, thank you to our TV team and uh, Andy for leading that, that team so well. This month, We're gonna wrap up our series on Acts. I only got two more sermons in the book of Acts. I can't believe it. I feel like uh, I'm sad already, gonna miss this amazing book. Um, And November 22nd, Evan Kuntz, who was, his face was frozen on TV a minute ago, is going to wrap up the whole series uh, very skillfully and ably. He's a a wonderful preacher. He's gonna be preaching again on December 27th. Aaron informed me that December 27th, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, is National Youth Minister Preach. Sunday. The preacher is supposed to take a Sunday off. So <laughs> I appreciate Evan being willing to uh, to pinch hit again. Uh, we're really excited to hear from Evan. Uh, these last few chapters in the book of Acts follow the Apostle Paul's trajectory to Rome and beyond. It's kind of the conclusion of his ministry uh, here on earth. And uh, after today, again, uh, we'll only have three more uh, weeks in this beautiful book. And last week we, we ended with. Paul's triumphal exit out of Jerusalem, where 470 soldiers rode out with him while his would be assassins looked on, and he traveled to Caesarea, which is uh, the province in the north. And Caesarea was the, the, the seat of power in Judea, it's where the Roman officials lived um, in that time, the, the governor of Caesarea was a guy named Antonius Felix. We're gonna call him Felix today. Uh, Antonius Felix uh, ran the court there in Caesarea, and Paul was called before the court in Caesarea to be tried by Felix. Now, we gotta know something about Felix before we get into our text today. A little background on who this guy was. Historians tell us that he was a pretty terrible governor. He started out as a slave, actually, which, Sounds impressive, like a rags to riches kind of story maybe, but this is not that kind of story. He wasn't really deserving of anything that he got. Uh, He was a a slave as a child, he and his brother Pallas, in the uh, home of Antonia, who was the mother of Claudius, who had become the emperor of all of Rome. So the boys, you know, played together, they were all buddies, uh, so much so that when Claudius eventually did become uh, the emperor, and they had freed Pallas and Felix, and therefore they were Roman citizens uh, at that point. Pallas and Claudius were really good buddies, and Pallas convinced Emperor Claudius, hey, give my my brother one of those cushy government jobs, and the emperor said, okay, and he installed Felix as the subordinate uh, governor, kind of the vice ruler of the Judean province, and then through some kind of uh, scheme that uh, Felix put into place, he got the governor deposed and he was next in line. So he became the governor of Judea through very backhanded means. And Felix was, uh, as we're going to see here, his tenure as governor was not a good one. It was marked by uh, insurrections and uprisings. And, and <laughs> Felix was just cruel. He was, he was ruthless. Uh, we know that historians tell us that any time there was an uprising, he would find out whoever the leader was of the uprising and have them crucified immediately. Even if he thought they were the leader of the uprising, he would have them immediately crucified, which didn 't win him a lot of favor with the, the people who were doing the uh, insurrection. You know, So uh, what happened that he did he did one thing well, apparently, Felix did, and that was Mary. All three of his wives were from royal origins. His first wife was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. And then his current wife in this passage is a lady named Drusilla. Drusilla was about 20 years old, we think, from the history books at this point. She was already on her second marriage, and the the history books tell us she was beautiful and bold, that she had many political aspirations of her own. And unlike Felix, who'd been raised as a pagan Roman, Drusilla was actually raised as a Jew, we see here in this text. She had a a Jewish background, apparently, but it seems that she had given up hope in the one true God by this point in her life. And Paul finds himself here in Felix's court in Caesarea with the Jewish leaders. Remember the Sanhedrin, the 70 men who ruled the the Jewish uh, areas around Jerusalem. Uh, They had accused him of all these horrible things, and now they had brought him before the court of Felix to try him. They were the plaintiffs, he was the defendant. So after Felix hears this uh, brilliant lawyer that the Sanhedrin had hired, we think he was probably a Gentile lawyer named Tertullus. And he had uh, you know come in flattering Felix with all these beautiful words, yo mighty Felix, you're so great and wonderful. And, and he tried to you know, give him all this flattery. And then he accused Paul of all these heinous crimes. And after Felix had heard Tertullus' accusations, he gives gives Paul a chance to reply, and Paul basically says, yeah, none of that is true. You guys know it's not true. You have no proof uh, to prove any of these accusations. But Felix wasn't swayed by either side, apparently. He didn't really know what to do, so he just threw Paul in prison but it was kind of a a house arrest situation. Look at verse 23 here in our text for today, Acts chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Acts 24. Felix gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. It's good to have friends, isn't it? It's good to have friends, especially when you're in prison. You know, uh, Paul... Had said something in his defense apparently that had stuck with Felix, because Felix isn't just done with Paul. He doesn't just throw him uh, throw him in prison and then throw away the key. I think something that Paul had said in his defense uh, had really gotten into Felix's brain and he couldn't shake it. Look at verse thirteen. Go back to verse thirteen. This is what Paul says in his defense. He says, "Neither can they prove to you, Felix." what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, capital W, the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Remember, Jesus came, he said, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? Not one little jot or iota will be removed from the law uh, that Paul says, I believe the Old Testament. I just believe now that it's been fulfilled in Christ and that I had this hope in the God of all the universe through this Messiah, Jesus Christ. I think that really got to Felix, apparently. That idea of a real hope, a living hope What was this way all about that Paul's talking about? I'm sure he asked his Jewish wife about it, but she wasn't really Jewish. She just was kind of brought up as a Jew. She couldn't explain what the way was because she didn't know the way. And so what we see here is that they decide to go talk to Paul for themselves. Felix and Drusilla approach the prison to have a word with Paul about what this way thing is about. And what we see in this exchange between Paul and Felix and Drusilla brings us some wisdom in how we should share God's word with others. And it also gives us wisdom into how we should receive God's word for ourselves. How should we share God's word with those that he might bring into our path each and every day? Well, first, we should share his word with boldness. Look at verses 24 through 25. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, we're gonna just cut it there, okay? We hear what Paul was saying, some really bold things before Felix, the most powerful man in the entire Judean province. You know, there's a, 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 a way that Paul doesn't beat around the bush on things, does he? That was not the message that this hedonistic couple wanted to hear when they went to go see Paul. They were probably expecting some kind of rabbinic lecture uh, or some kind of enlightened, you know, uh, teaching from Paul, the great rabbi. But instead, Paul gets straight to preaching, he starts proclaiming Jesus Christ. He starts proclaiming about righteousness and the coming judgment. You know, he, he gets personal. He gets in their, their business. He doesn't pull any punches, but he spoke the truth boldly in love. There's a story I read recently about the English reformer. Since this is a we had Reformation Day yesterday, October thirty first, fifteen seventeen. Uh, There's a guy named Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was an Anglican bishop, uh, and he often preached in the court of King Henry VIII in the 1550s or so. And one Sunday, his sermon apparently was a little too bold. He stepped on some toes, as preachers sometimes do. And the king was greatly displeased, so he sent some of his officials to Hugh Latimer and said, hey, uh, the king wants you to preach again next week, but he wants you to start with an apology for your bold you know, stepping on people's toes last week. It stepped on his toes, he's the king. So you're gonna preach next week but you gotta start with an apology. So he gets up in the pulpit the following Sunday, he opens his Bible, he reads his text and then he starts a conversation with himself. He says, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch "'the king's most excellent majesty, "'who can take away thy life if thou offendest. "'But then consider well, Hugh, "'dost thou not know from whence thou comest, "'upon whose message thou art sent? "'Even by the great and mighty God, "'who is all-present and who beholdeth all thy ways "'and is able to cast thy soul in hell. "'Therefore take care "'that thou deliverest thy message faithfully.'" And he proceeded to preach the exact same message he preached a week before, only this time with more energy and more conviction than ever before. And things didn't go great earthly wise for Hugh Latimer. He was imprisoned in the Tower of London on several occasions. He eventually was uh, removed from his bishop office and uh, eventually he was burned at the stake alive. For him, to live was Christ and to die was gain. Do we really, really believe that today? Do we really believe that for us to live is Christ's will and for his kingdom and to die is to, to go home and be with the Lord? Do we really have that kind of faith and conviction that enables us to be so bold in how we proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world? Would we be so bold as to offend someone in power? Or even more difficult than that, would we be so bold as to offend a family member? Would we be so bold as to offend our neighbor, our coworker, by holding fast to the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel of his love and grace? We've been talking on Wednesday nights in our midweek service about engaging our culture in, in being faithful as Christians, but uh, engaging our culture. And that takes boldness. We keep seeing that theme come up time and time again, that you have to step out. It takes risk to be bold in a way that really engages the culture in truth and in love. When we see injustice perpetrated around us, when we observe someone heading down a, a path that we know will lead to destruction, will we be bold in how we address it? Will we speak up? Will we share the good news of Jesus Christ even though it may cost us dearly? The second point of wisdom in, in sharing God's word is share it straightforward. We don't have time to, to beat around the bush. Share it straightforward. We see that Paul was very straightforward in his witness. Felix and Drusilla again probably came to Paul for some, you know, learning for some cultural appropriation that they can learn something from this Jewish rabbi. Maybe they were coming for entertainment. Maybe they were bored and had nothing better to do. But that's not what happened. What did Paul speak about? Verse 24, again, after some days, Felix and his wife, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Paul had no other message. All he he knew how to speak of was Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul knew that what Felix and Drusilla really needed more than anything was the good news of saving love in Christ Jesus. And and Felix had already had three wives. He had been this cruel and and pagan guy. One of the historians said that he was full of lust and cruelty and that he ruled with the the power of a king but the mind of a slave. He was apparently not very bright and he was just a vengeful, upset, petty kind of guy. And then his wife, again, who already on her second husband by the age of 20, he knew that, that these were all vain pursuits. All these political ambitions that, that Felix and Drusilla had deep in their hearts, that that was chasing after the wind. It would not fill the hole in their hearts. It would not satisfy them deep down. So he's straightforward about their sin as well. In verse 25, we're going to see three ways in verse 25, that show us uh, how Paul directly confronted their sin. In verse 25, it says, first, he confronted their idea of righteousness. He he gets to talking about righteousness. We are not right, Paul says. We are deeply flawed. We are more broken and frail than we think we are. It says Paul reasoned about righteousness with them. He told them about the righteousness of God and that we are not God. Romans 3, verse 10, assures us, none is righteous, no, not one. And then Romans 1:18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their uprightness suppress the truth. Remember, Paul's talking about Gentiles in that passage, but then he goes on a few verses later to say, hey, you religious people too, you're in the same boat. You're in the same sinking boat. We're not better than anybody, right? We're all in the same sinking boat of sin that makes us not right with God. God is completely holy. He's completely set apart. He's completely other than. He's infinitely above us, and he can't abide sin. Sin is not in his nature. So next, verse 25 says that Paul talked to them about self-control, He reasoned with them about self-control. That's something that apparently they didn't have a lot of. It's not easy or or fun to talk about self-control, but maybe he explained to them that there is no self-control apart from the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 makes it clear that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It doesn't come through trying really hard. Self-control comes as we grow in grace and are more filled with the abundant life the Holy Spirit brings in us. And finally, in verse 25, Paul taught them about the coming judgment. That's not a popular topic. (laughs) Uh, You probably have heard hellfire and brimstone preachers before, and we kind of roll our eyes at them, right? But Jesus spoke about hell. The Bible talks about hell and heaven, and we would be, you know, lacking in our gospel presentation if we leave out the judgment of God. You know, it's not fun to talk about it, but that doesn't make it any less true. As my friend, Fran Shaka, a Bible teacher in Birmingham, says, um, you know, this is America. You're free to believe whatever you want. You can believe whatever you want, that's fine. You know, you can believe whatever you want until you die. Then all that matters is what's true. I think that's really helpful for us in our society today. All that matters after we die is what is true. We have to talk about judgment. I don't think Paul told Felix and Drusilla, hey, because of your bad deeds, God's gonna punish you by sending you to hell. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that our own hearts are already separated from God by our inherent weakness and human frailty, that we are bent in on ourselves by nature, that our human nature is narcissism and selfishness, and that we are desperately in need of a savior. In order for the good news to be truly good, we have to be straightforward about the bad news. That's increasingly unfashionable, I know, but if we leave out the lostness of humanity and God's universal standard of holiness, then we're not, procl- <coughs> I'm not proclaiming the gospel. <coughs> I'm okay. Let's be straightforward <coughs> because we love our neighbors. I would like a water. That'd be great. Thanks, Gene. I guess you should take one up with me. I know, it's my fault. How did Felix and Drusilla take all this? How did they receive this teaching from Paul? Did they respond in anger? Did they make fun of him? Were they confused? Did they want more? We don't know about Drusilla, but we see what happens. The last part of verse 25 says that Felix was alarmed. The word in Greek means literally terrified. He was completely shaken up. Paul could see the fear in his eyes, and he said, "Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you." How tragic. How tragic. This is such a, a tragic statement. This may well be the end of Felix's soul. This is this, this opportunity. Where it becomes the continental divide of Felix's life. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Good hustle. (laughs) It was time to make a crucial choice. Would Felix go towards believing repentance, or would he continue in ignoring the truth of God? Would he continue to reject the things of God? He found himself being weighed on the scale against God's holiness. And for a moment, the the scale trembled. For a moment, he was under the, the Spirit's conviction. And then he responds with, go away. Just go away, Paul. I don't want to hear any more of this. It really is sad. His decision to reject the gospel would certainly have consequences that would last into eternity. Kent Hughes says in his commentary on this passage that two tragedies are possible for every human soul. The first is the tragedy of never trembling, of never coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Never coming face to face with our sin in front of a high and holy God. That's the first tragedy. The second tragedy is to be under conviction, to experience that soul-shaking, spirit-induced trembling, but then disregarding it and saying, go away. This is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are broken over their sin, for they shall be comforted. When When one comes to an eternal reckoning And then rejects the truth, turns away from the way, the truth, and the life, it is tragic indeed. Just like we found wisdom in how to share God's word from Paul's example, we also see in this passage wisdom on how not to receive God's word through Drusilla and Felix's example. How should we receive God's word when it comes? How should we respond? Felix didn't say he would never hear Paul speak again. He never said that, uh, you know, I'm not ever going to talk to you again. He just seems to procrastinate. We're told in, in verse 24, they talk again later. But when God's word comes to us, with convicting power to the point where we're trembling, we must never put off our response. That's the key here. How not to receive God's word? Don't put off our response. Felix just kind of put Paul away and then, you know, never, and and then continued to speak with him. Why is that so bad? Look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. For greed's sake, he continued to meet with Paul. He sent for him often and conversed with him, hoping to get some funds out of it. His heart had grown calloused and dull. Why can we not put off our response? You see, two reasons. The first one is that we may indeed hear the same message again, but it might not bring the same kind of Holy Spirit conviction in that moment. You know, when when Paul met with Felix all those other times, I'm sure he heard the gospel. That's all Paul knew how to talk about was Jesus. So he heard this same message of Jesus Christ over and over again, but it didn't lead to trembling like it did the first time, when the Holy Spirit convicted him of the truth. You know, uh, we tend to grow callous and numb over time to that kind of truth, don't we? The second reason why we, we shouldn't put off our response to God's word is that truth that's not acted on can dull us to the point where we don't even understand it. This is what Jesus was telling the Pharisees in in Matthew chapter 13, verse 13. He told his disciples, "'This is why I speak to them in parables, "'because seeing they do not see, "'and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand.'" Thanks, sorry. They couldn't understand the gospel because their hearts had become dull and calloused to the gospel. You know, even for people who become dull and and numb to the truth, the the crazy thing is that whatever truth they had before, all the the riches of the Hebrew scriptures, even that truth can, can be taken away from them. The revelation of God's good character and who he is, even that became removed from them. Matthew 13, 12, one verse earlier, Jesus said, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. They would live bitter, petty lives for the rest of their earthly existence, apart from God's love and from his grace and from his power in their lives. When we are under that conviction of the Holy Spirit, we must act. We must respond or suffer spiritual consequences, maybe even eternally. We heard Barry Minter share last week a beautiful testimony of how the Lord spoke to him, and and he was under conviction to speak to this woman. And so he rolled his window down and ended up becoming like the hotel chaplain that night, apparently, going from room to room and praying with folks. People asking him, are you a pastor? It's because he listened. He acted. He responded when he felt the Lord speaking. He took a bold step and acted. If we're prompted to speak, then we should speak. If we're prompted by the Spirit to give, then we should give. If we're prompted to get involved or to plug into a study or a small group or a church or engage the culture in a a justice ministry or a compassion ministry, then we should dive in. The risk will be worth it. The reward will be worth it, I promise. Felix gives a classic example of how not to respond to the word when it comes. So what's a classic example of how we should respond when it comes? Well, do you remember the response of the Philippian jailer back in Acts 16? Remember the earthquake comes and the the shackles fall off of all the prisoners, the prison doors are thrown wide open and the guy gets his sword out and says, well, I'm done, I guess I'm, I'm through. He prepares to fall on his sword. The jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Remember, Paul had spoken to him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, buddy, you don't need to hurt yourself. We're all here. No one's gone. We're all right here. And he says, wow, what must I do to be saved? He falls on his face before these guys knowing that the Holy Spirit is moving in his heart, and he says, what must I do to be saved? That's how we ought to respond. You know, we respond in faith to God's invitation, and that brings new life in us. We see in God's word that that rejecting God's word or even procrastinating may lead to dulling the truth in our hearts over time. You know, we're having a lot of parenting conversations in my household these days with an 11-year-old boy, an eight-year-old girl, and a four-year-old boy, and a puppy as well. Uh, so one phrase we keep using over and over again is, we want you to obey the first time. We want you to obey the first time, not the second time that we tell you, or the third time, or the 28th time that we tell you. We want you to obey the first time. That's what God wants us to do if he's speaking to us today, let us obey the first time. It's always the right time to do the right thing. I love how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter six. This is years later, six, verse one and two. Working together with him, with Christ, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says in a favorable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't delay. Many of you heard the, the song. was really popular when I was in college. I Dare You to Move by Switchfoot. Today is the day of salvation. Welcome to the fallout. Welcome to the resistance. The tension is here but between who you are and who you could be between how it is and how it should be. I dare you to move. I dare you to move, to lift yourself up off the floor. I dare you to move like today never happened. Today never happened before. Maybe redemption has stories to tell. Maybe forgiveness is right where you fell. Where can you run to escape from yourself? Where are you gonna go? Salvation is here. Let's pray. Lord, God, we thank you that now is the time to do the right thing. Now is the time to turn to you. God, thank you that you you do bring us under those moments of Holy Spirit conviction. What a blessing and privilege that is, that we're not left to discern for ourselves how we should act or what we should do, but that you guide us in your grace and for your glory. God, I pray that we would act the first time, that we would obey those moments of intuition where we believe the Spirit is compelling us. Help us to know the difference, God. Give us discernment about when the Spirit is telling us to do something. Let us risk greatly, let us be bold in how we share God's word with others. Maybe be straightforward and not beat around the bush about the truth because we love our neighbor, God. We want what's best for them. We want them to flourish and thrive as they only can in your ways, in your gospel truth. God, we pray that you would help us to to be peacemakers and bridge builders and caregivers like we've been talking about on Wednesday night by risking, by being bold in how we get involved and how we... Uh, sow seeds of grace and justice where there are none. Lord, I thank you for this time that we have now together to come to your table, to approach uh, the table of mercy, knowing that you are quick to forgive, that you have given us your own son. Who are we to withhold anything from you when it's all grace, the most grace that you've lavished on us being the fact that you did not spare your only son? but you sent him to die a death that we should have died. You sent him to pay a debt that we owed but could never have paid in order to make us right with you both now and forever and to usher in a whole new era of your kingdom coming into this world as you continue to make all things new, including us. Oh God, we love you. We pray these things in the high and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.